This is The Think Tank with Dr. Michael Neal, talking about the major political, economic, and social issues of the week. The Think Tank, KTAR News on 92.3 FM and KTAR.com. Our guest is Dr. Lawrence Krauss, a repeat guest and old friend of The Think Tank, is an internationally known physicist and public intellectual. Welcome back to the show. It's always good to be back here, Mike. And you are back here in Phoenix. Tell us why. Yeah, I'm back here because we're going to have our uh, the Origins Project Foundation, which I'm the president of. The nonprofit foundation is going to have its first public uh, events, which have been put aside for a few years because of COVID. And at the Orpheum Theater, November 15th and 16th. That's next Tuesday and Wednesday. Tuesday and Wednesday, indeed. And, and they're going to be great nights. The first night... I'm going to be on stage with Richard Dawkins, an internationally known biologist and and probably one of the most well-read science writers in in history. And we'll talk about everything about his some of his new books about science, science and public policy. And we'll also talk about um, actually my upcoming book, I think, and then we'll do some signings afterwards. And then the next night, we're going to have a panel of three Nobel laureates and also one of the most well-known and, and uh, significant theoretical astrophysicists in the world, as well as me, talking about cosmology, uh, 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 the future of cosmology, what mysteries exist in the universe, what remains to be discovered. They both start at 7 o'clock at night, There's a, there, uh, and um, uh, we'll, we'll have a panel that second night, and then we'll have a uh, roundtable discussion, and, and both nights we'll have audience Q&A after the intermission, so it'll be a chance for people to interact. And as I say, on the first night, Richard and I will be actually be signing books afterwards as well. So we hope it'll be two nights of, of fun, entertainment, and information, and we've really been working hard to try and encourage students to get in, in, involved. We, the foundation has, has given away, uh, is, has gotten funds to be able to give away up to uh, 500 tickets per night for high school students, uh, we've worked with a bunch of the Phoenix uh, school boards and 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 have given uh, tickets away to them. And and just yesterday, we decided, and I'm happy to announce that we are um, giving away uh, for interested high school or college students uh, who go to www.originsproject.org and go to the events page and click on that. They'll be able to register for up to two free tickets apiece for each night. So that's a, a new addition. We just opened up 200 more seats. So the, the hope is we'll get a lot of young kids uh, interested in science and uh, and also some uh, older kids <laughs> and, uh, because science is so vital to not just our thinking about the universe, but as you know, to talking about you know public policy as well. Yeah. And if you are, are not a student and you want tickets, you go where? Well, you also go to the same page and you can uh, originsproject.org. Go to the events page. It'll take you to the origin. You can click on there. It'll take you to the Orpheum uh, box office site online, or you can go to the Orpheum box office and and, and buy it. Either way, uh, there are still some tickets available. And um, I'm not sure. There may even be some VIP tickets available. There are a few VIP tickets that get you to a reception before the event with the speakers and and other people. And also, in the case of uh, the Richard Dawkins event, uh, also get you a free book. Ah, you have generously offered up to five pairs of tickets, not not per person, but up to five pairs of tickets here to listeners of the Think Tank. And I'll tell you how you get in the lottery for that. You go to my website, which is www.mikeoneal.com. 
That's O-N-E-I-L, MikeO'Neill.org. And you will see at the bottom of that page, there's a, there's a link that says email to email me. And the first, uh, first five that indicate, indicate, by the way, uh, in, if you're in the first five, whether you're interested in tickets for one day, the other day, or both. And uh, that will be given out to on a, on a first come first uh, basis to the first five responders. And uh, I, if you uh, stick to the end of the show, if you miss the website, I'll give it to you one more time at the very end. And uh, there we are. So tell you you mentioned a new book. Tell us what that is. Oh, the new book is coming out in May. It's called well, it has two different names. Which first time that's happened in England, it's called the Known Unknowns. That sounds like, uh, what was his Donald name? Rumsfeld. Donald Rumsfeld. And yeah. my American publishers didn't want to go with the Donald Rumsfeld <laughs> quote. So it's, it's called, in the United States, it's called The Edge of Knowledge. Mm-hmm. It's about what we know we don't know about the universe. From, from say, time, that, say that again slowly. What we what? know we don't know about the universe. Mm-hmm. The known unknowns. Known unknowns. Okay. And, yeah. uh, and it goes through from time, space, matter, life, and consciousness. There are five segments. So that's coming out next May, and I hope to come back then and talk to you about it. And, uh, you know, we'll still, we'll talk about those subjects with, with Richard for sure. And, of course, some of the issues are relevant to our, to our Nobel panel and, as well. And uh, uh, it's, uh, it's just I'm really excited to be, to, to be back on stage again in, in, and at the beautiful Orpheum Theater. It's, yeah, uh, it's, it is. So, that was a, a, a major renovation here uh, some years ago now. But it was a, a, that, credit Terry Goddard. I think it was his baby, if memory yeah, serves me and correct. It's, yeah, it's really, um, it's really lovely. I've done some events there before. I did one. I think I did one with Alan Alda there or, or uh, years ago, but but it's a beautiful place and and, and uh, small enough to have a degree of intimacy. Yeah, exactly. I mean it's not small but it is not gargantuan either. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's that's the part part I like most is connecting with the audience and having audience questions and and uh and 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 I think that's you know people like to have a chance to interact mm-hmm. and and it's important the question and answer period is is one of my favorite parts of our program. So uh, we, we people will write their questions on a card, and over the over the intermission, I'll be scurrying through them to try and pick some. And it'll it'll uh, and we also actually the other thing we're we're doing is um, getting some students uh, also in the classroom to be able to submit questions, and also we my new um, Substack site, which is lawrencekraus.substack.com. Um, for 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 subscribers to that who also listen to the Origins podcast, that's a way to get to the Origins podcast. And a number of the guests on the program have been on our podcast in the past. But subscribers will be able to submit questions online as well, and we'll pick from some of those. So there's lots of ways, even if you can't make it, to be able to at least ask questions. And then the whole event is being recorded uh, by our wonderful team, the same team actually that made the movie The Unbelievers with me and Richard. Mm-hmm. Um, and later on, it'll be it'll be broadcast online through the Origins podcast on. And so you'll be able to hear your question answered then. But if you only listen to it that way, you get to miss. If you And if you haven't been to the Orpheum Theater, I'd say show up 15 minutes early and yeah. walk around the building. It's a gorgeous. It's a bo- gorgeous. It's like beautiful. a 1930s retro kind yeah, of. Yeah, exactly. It's that wonderful period. It, it, it's just a spectacular room. I, I yeah. Uh, yeah, definitely come for that, but also for hopefully us. <laughs> yeah. We will uh, pepper you with some questions of, of relevance to all of this uh, when we return in just a moment. And we'll talk uh, about some of these issues when we return with Dr. Lawrence Krauss in just a moment in the Think Tank. The Think Tank. KTAR News on 92.3 FM and KTAR.com. 
We are back with Dr. Lawrence Krauss, internationally known physicist and public intellectual. And I want to I want to ask you kind of about the latter. You know, as an advocate of science, it seems to me that is an advocate of of the application of facts and data to public problems, among other things. Uh, how are we doing as a society on that? <laughs> not pretty, not not well enough. In fact, yeah, I, when one talks about science, it's really a process. It's not a set of mm-hmm. facts, but it's a, it's a process, which is a way to uncover what's false and what's probably true, which should be the, what exactly what we use in public policy, in politics and in society to try and figure out how to, how to move forward to solve problems. Simply, it's very simple. You, you have ideas, you test them, you test them over and over again. You check and see if your predictions work. If they do, you still check them again. If they don't, you move on to something else. And really, science is really part of our lives. I remember one of my favorite science writers is Jacob Bernowski, who said it's not a game. It's whole and real. And you can't, you can't avoid it just by pretending. All of the major issues from, from health, education, national security, the, the, the hot-button issues that are really part of the process that – that you just all had here and, and, and are still, it's still ongoing at the moment we're talking, the political process, all of those things depend upon, in some sense, the application of empirical evidence, making rational decisions based on that, not deciding what realities exist because you like them. Uh, I, I, one of my favorite uh, uh, science fiction writers wrote, reality is that which continues to exist even when you stop believing in it. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, it seems to me the difference mm-hmm. is... In scientific discourse, Mm -hmm. you invest a great deal of effort in trying to prove yourself wrong. Yeah. Whereas our political discourse is mostly about, I've got this position, and people are very, very good at marshalling arguments to prove their side. But but that's that's kind of anti-science. You want to invest every ounce of your intellectual capacity in disproving your beliefs and it, to the extent that you fail to do so you have uh, you have bolstered absolutely i mean you said it well richard Feynman, the nobel prize winning physicist said you want to spend as much time disproving your ideas as trying to prove them right and and also you have to combine that with the fact that we the easiest person to fool is yourself therefore it's easy to believe what you want to believe it's easy to promote ideas that you want to promote but just because you want to promote them, that doesn't mean they're they're real or true. And so I can understand. Look, politics isn't science. And my wife used to, you know, work for the government of Australia, and she was very clear to me that what interests scientists and what interests politicians are different, and with good reason. I mean, there are many factors uh, that politicians have to take into account: their constituencies, uh, perceptions economics sometimes. So when scientists say this is clearly, X is clearly a policy, well, you have to, if you're a politician, you have to think, you know, how well does that merge with what what, what my constituents want or may need for other reasons? So there are a lot of competing factors you have to take into account. So I can understand that, um, you know, take take climate change, which I think we talked about a while ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you so climate change is happening. It's human-induced. There's no doubt about that. But your decisions on what policies you need to take depend a little bit upon your perceptions. But you can't – but one thing you can't do is deny that it's happening as, as a motivation for your, for your policies. Then when you promote policies – and I understand you know, politicians are going to promote things – what would be really novel – and I don't think I've ever seen it happen – 
is for a politician a year later saying, you know, we suggested this, but it's not really working. <laughs> Let's change there's our mind. There's no political gain from that. Yeah, that's and, the and problem. Nor, and what I was going to say earlier, there's no political gain. In fact, it's deadly when confronted with a complicated problem for a politician to say, I don't know. Exactly. What we seem to demand from our politician is that they have some certain decisive policy that they are convinced is going to fix things when the problems we have left are the really hard ones. Yeah, exactly. And And I don't know is a pretty good answer for it's, a lot of the – I don't – well, I, I don't know, comma, but here's what I'm going to do to find out. Exactly. You know, you hit the nail on the head. I don't know. In fact, those are the first sentence of my new book. In fact, I don't know is really the most important thing you can say as a scientist not and as a politician. But you know what? As a parent and a teacher, too, we 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 mix up decisiveness with wisdom in our mm-hmm. and, and 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 well put. And, well and put it's yeah. really unfortunate because not knowing is exciting, first of all, but it means there's something we have to learn. Almost none of us know what the consequences of any political policy is going to be because the world is so complicated. We can say, you know, I don't know what they're going to be. My advisor suggests that this will happen and this will happen. And that's one of the reasons we think it's worth doing. And the evidence from past policies of X, Y, and Z did this. Let's see. Uh, Because politics is an experiment. In fact, life is an experiment. And, And the great thing about science is you're supposed to learn from your experiments. You, you know, I've, I've heard it discussed. You'll love this as a physicist. Mm-hmm. Where sociologists talking say, well, physics is easy because when you apply certain forces to thir- – they, they behave in a knowable and predictable way. When you start dealing with human beings, no, that's the hard science because <laughs> at the very best, people will behave probabilistically in response to something and maybe not even that. Yeah, it's true. Well, I agree with some of what they said, except I wouldn't call it a science at the end. But mm-hmm. it, but it's much harder. The reason physics proceeds so well is that we can isolate things, we can test them, and it gets much harder when we deal with people. For one, I, one reason is ethics. Yeah, we are not the 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 gold standard for anything is a true experiment, and we are almost never permitted to do true experiments with human beings. Yeah, so yeah. we have to use these very weak tools, and that are therefore filled with. And by experiment would be, for example, and I can tell you about a couple. One of my wrote a I remember wrote a book review about. There was an experiment to provide. Um, this is going back a lot of years, I'm trying to remember, to provide transitory income assistance to people who were on welfare. And they were interested in it, and they did it initially in a truly controlled way, which is you had a group of people that were held for this, they got, that that were in this category, and then they randomly assigned that they would get traditional, you know, they get whatever the system Mm -hmm. gave them now, and this other group would get some transitory uh, payments. And they would examine the impact of this on cost, the life outcomes and everything. And it was wonderful because it was a true experiment. And then halfway through the thing, the legislature changed the welfare rules and it just blew the whole thing up. Well, you know, that's part of the problem, but it's actually getting worse. And, and here's where it really impacts on science. It's not just politics. But right now, political factors, especially uh, political correctness, are impacting on what – Funding agencies are the kind of questions and experiments that scientists can do. The NIH, for example, recently said, well, they're going to restrict access to data 
for researchers who are working on problems that they think might stigmatize some of the community. Well, that's, I mean, that that's horrendous. And you're seeing it more and more, the notion that, that, uh, that you cannot do experiments because the outcomes might not be pleasant. They might be uncomfortable. Are, are you familiar with the Stanford, Zimbardo yeah. and the Stanford yeah. prison experiment? Yeah, of course. Very powerful thing. Uh, they, took, they randomly took a group of uh, Stanford students and they said, you're prisoners and you're guards. And they told the guards, he said, listen, you know, these SOBs, you got to, you know, mm-hmm. you don't, you know yeah. whatever. And they looked at the behavior and it was, it was devastating what happened to them. And I remember uh, when Abu Ghraib hit. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ted Koppel did mm-hmm. show on, and fortunately, somebody connected them into that because it explained Abu Ghraib perfectly. Yeah, sure. You can eventually you keep escalating until you're doing things you can't would never believe you would do because you're fulfilling the expectations of a role. Yeah, exactly. Instead of just seeing what happens, and that's why science is part of our life. Some people accuse us being so, of scientism, saying so, where we think science is too much a part of people's life, but it really is a part. Science as a process is something everyone should be involved in every day. That experiment was powerful, and there is no way you would get that through an institutional review no, board. No, you no, would they, not no. be permitted to do that today. No, the, the restrictions on what the kind of questions you can ask in classrooms and in research Uh, And the experiments you could do is terrifying me right now. And one of the reasons that academia in the United States is suffering. suffering I remember having to go through an IRB when I was at a university Mm -hmm. and uh, and I had to convince them that asking people survey questions over the phone would not do them irreparable harm. And that's how silly it gotten. I wrote a piece recently about a about a professor who was removed from a tenured position for literally doing a survey that asked questions about the university. We will be back with Lawrence Krauss in just a moment. The Think Tank, KTAR News on 92.3 FM and KTAR.com. We're back with Lawrence Krauss, and uh, the one thing here that is merciless is the clock. You got cut off uh, <laughs> mercilessly. Uh, the one thing I can't control in any way, shape, or form here. Uh, but you were referencing a, a, a university uh, situation where somebody did a survey. Yeah, yeah. A, a psychologist, I think Dave Porter. He was. It's it's tragic. He was looking at the question of hostile work environments, which have been permeating the debate in universities and in businesses. What creates hostile environments? And he was. And he decided to to do a survey with a lot of different examples to get senses of what uh, of what people giving people hypo- hypothetical. Yeah, and mm-hmm. some of the hypotheticals were loosely based on real events that had happened at the university, but not with reference to individuals. Some events which he thought were inappropriate, and he he actually said so internally. He actually went through the IRB review process. At the that's university. an institutional review. They, they are basically they were put in some years ago to um, basically to deal with things like the Zimbardo experiment we mentioned, where you have to prove that there will be no harm done to subjects. Yeah, exactly. And he so they they put it out and and they got responses from from about 200 people. And uh, and the classes actually analyze that. And I'm actually told I just I I produced uh, uh, on my Substack site a a piece that he actually a guest post that he wrote about his experiences. Some of the students who worked on that later got positions, graduate schools in major universities as a result of that. But it offended people that some of the examples were from related to the university. There was a, there was a backlash. Some of the students complained 
They, they, they complained that they replicated real-life events exactly, too much? Exactly, yeah. Well, and the isn't university, that what you want? <laughs> and the university was upset because, mm-hmm. of course, it put, in some sense, them in a bad light. Because for, these incidents occurred at that university. And, and not only that, the decisions that were made about what might be hostile was very dubious. Mm-hmm. And the university removed him from a tenured position. By saying he was incompetent, which is just amazing. He'd been, a, I think, a president of a, one of the American Psychological Associations. He'd been provost of the university. It's amazing that that kind of outcry uh, for just simply asking the question, a question that really should be asked and debated and discussed, something as important as the work environment mm-hmm. at, a, at an academic institution. Yeah, let's discuss it and let's just talk about what we, you know, what's, what's reasonable not not what words we can say or can't say, because in fact, I think at a university there should be no words you can't say, because it's all about open discussion and critical thinking, and you shouldn't feel safe when you go to university. You and, shouldn't feel, you know... Uh, and the university is the ideal place to not feel safe with ideas because you know that you want a place that will be non where the consequences will be minimal and yeah. you can stretch and you can learn. Exactly. And, and you know what? The day you graduate and you go out into the world, life's going to be a whole lot tougher than anything you're ever going to see inside the Absolutely. university. Absolutely. It, it is the safest place. It should be the place where people feel like they can, not only that they can, but they should confront their ideas. If there's one place where you should confront your a priori biases and suspicions, it's in a university. And as my late friend uh, Christopher Hitchens talked about, when it comes to this issue of free speech, we talk about free speech as if we're protecting the speech of the person doing the speech. The real purpose of free speech is to protect the rights of the listener to find out they're wrong. <laughs> and that, and that's what's, you know, the, the pur- I've often said the purpose of education is to make you uncomfortable at some level. If you're mm. always comfortable, you're never, never confronting. You're never learning. You're never confronting your limits of your knowledge or some of your biases. And in fact, in teaching physics, many times I've learned, and, and it's well known in pedagogy, that the only way to really can get people to learn something is to confront their own misconceptions. When you do that, you remember it. I remember once doing an experiment, actually, for what turned out to be many leaders of the free world at, a, at an event in Aspen. And um, and I did this simple experiment, you know, with Galileo did. I took a piece of paper and a book and I dropped them and said, which is going to hit first? And, of course, the audience said the book. And then I and, – and, and, and then – and then uh, – and then I said, why? And a half the audience said, because the book's heavier. They'd all learned in school that Galileo mm-hmm. said it doesn't matter. So I crunched up the piece of paper and then dropped them, and they, they fall at the same rate. And I guarantee you after that, those people would remember it. Because the first time, they just wrote something on a board sure, sure. to pass an exam. But when you confront your own misconceptions, and Galileo was great at that, one of the reasons that made him one of the first great sort of scientists as well as science popularizers, is then you then you remember it because – Hey, I I had the wrong view of the world. It's the same experience I used to work at science museums. They call it the aha experience. But any time you see something and suddenly you see it a new way, it's wonderful. You get a rush of, for most people, you get a rush of joy and adrenaline Say, wow, I now see the world in a different way than I did before. Unfortunately, for a lot of people, they think that's a threat now. And especially in politics, where somehow listening outside your echo chamber to someone who may see the world slightly differently is verboten. And one of the problems of, you know, social media is supposed to, should have been great, the internet, because it opens up the whole world to you. And instead, it's just the opposite. It's instead of the opposite. You it's the echo chamber of your pre-existing beliefs. Yeah, and of course, advertisers use that by, you know, 
sending you information and uh, and 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 programs that validate what you were looking at earlier and if you constantly get validated it's impossible to really understand ultimately how the world really works well we had a secretary of state candidate here who said uh, you know I wouldn't have certified this last election because I don't know anybody who voted for Biden yeah can I mean, you imagine I mean there was that that's a statement has historical precedent there was a 1972 case of an NYU Philosophy a professor said the same thing. I don't know anybody who didn't vote for McGovern. <laughs> uh, so <laughs> it's a perfect example because yeah, you generally know the people who think like you, and 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 uh, what a sad world it would be if you think about it. If we all thought exactly the same, the 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 differences, the opportunity to learn. Is what's so exciting, and that's what science is all about. That's what we'll be talking about on Tuesday and Wednesday, the opportunity to look out at the universe and have the universe surprise you. Wow. I mean, and of course, that's what, what one of the people who's going to be on on Wednesday night is, is John Mather, won the Nobel Prize for his work in cosmology. He was one of the chief scientists. He, he helped design and develop the J- James Webb Space Telescope. And every week, though, there are new pictures coming out that are, in some sense, causing us to go, wow, I didn't realize the universe could be like that. And, and, and it's wonderful that the public loves those photos so much. And I'm really excited that, that John's going to be on, on, on the program as a result. You know, you're excited. I'm excited by, you know, being confronted by new things. There are a lot of people, I think, who are very, very distraught by that. Yeah. And, and, and a lot of them are religious people who seem to require answers and certainty up front. Yeah, they want the answers. Before You're not in the, the certainty business. <laughs> yeah, I'm in the uncertainty business. And that's one of the strengths of science, the fact that we can know when we don't know exactly everything, which, again, is the subject of my new book. But you're, you're absolutely right. The problem with a lot of religious stuff is that you give the answers before you ask the questions. And, and the fact that, that, you know, science evolves and changes. You know, what, what was once what survives the test of experiment yesterday will always survive the test of experiment. Newton was may have been supplanted by Einstein and beyond, but it, but if you throw a ball, it's still going to be described by Newton's laws, regardless of what we learn about quantum gravity. But still, our view of the world changes. Some people think the fact that 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 the they still believe in what the scriptures said, you know, over two thousand years ago, and nothing's changed is a strength. But in some sense, it's a weakness because we've learned so much more about the world. It would be hard to expect people back then writing to 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 be able to have knowledge of the things we have knowledge now. A lot of religion is people's resp- pre-science, you know, pre the what 14th century yeah. or something like that, uh, where all kinds of things were happening and people were searching for answers. Yeah. You know, why do volcanoes erupt? Yeah. Why does, you know, there must be a spirit that some accept. Yeah. If you don't have some understanding of geology, that you, gives you some comfort. Yeah, you want comfort. You want to understand if the world isn't fair to you, you want to understand why. You want, you want, we're, we're, it's an evolutionary idea, the idea that we want there to be some purpose to things. And we could talk about, I, mean, I think I've used in this show before the example of, it's an old example that I think I first heard from Richard Dawkins, who I'll be talking to, that, you know, in, in the savannah in Africa, our ancestors, some of them, you know, the trees would be rustling, the leaves would be rustling, they'd say that's nothing. And some of them say, maybe it's a lion. And the ones who said it was nothing never got to reproduce. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not too surprising that, that, that that's built into our, in some sense, our, our psychology. And so we want, we, want, we want to believe, as Fox Muldar says in the X-Files, and we've and we got to realize we all do. And part of science is, is getting your, to check yourself, realizing you, you want the answer. When you write a theory, you want, you want the answer to be what you hoped it would be, right? It's good for you. And 
that fact that you want things to be the way that you hope they'd be is something we have to not fight against, but guard against, because uh, you can you, you can really get bitten uh, by that, and society can get bitten if we move forward with policies based on what we want to be the case rather than what is the case. It seems to me you have core beliefs, too, that, that are immutable, but it, they're more to process than to answers. Well, perhaps. No, I don't like to use the word. The notion of experiment. Yeah, I, the you notion know. of experiment. But you know what? I mean, I don't you like to use the word belief. I think things mm-hmm. are likely or unlikely. But I like to think that if I was confronted with evidence that any of those quote-unquote core beliefs are wrong, that I would be willing to change it. And certainly my experience, my life as a scientist has helped train me to do that. There are many times I've discovered, you know what, I've been wrong. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and like a businessman, you know, I ran a, cor- I ran a program once, a master's degree in physics entrepreneurship, which the head of our mm-hmm. business school at the time said was an oxymoron, but he didn't realize that scientists are really entrepreneurs. When you discover that track you're working on is, is wrong or not going to work, just like a businessman, you learn from that failure. The failure can lead to the next success. Mm-hmm. And I think we all have to realize that as well, that we don't teach people in, in some sense how to fail effectively in school. One of the reasons why I, I read uh, some studies recently that about age and entrepreneurship mm-hmm. and that while the image of the entrepreneur is some 20-something, that yeah. the, 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 the more successful entrep- are in their 50s. Sure. Because they've had a lot of failures. They've, they've, <laughs> they've failed and they've learned from their failures and their, their success rate is a lot higher. No, there's, the, you know, there, there's the very conspicuous yeah, exceptions yeah, yeah. to that in technology, the Bill Gates, yeah, and yeah. the, the Facebook. Those, and but some whatever. of them failed earlier, too. You don't realize they just started earlier. But, yeah, we, when we ran that program, we bought back physicists who'd become entrepreneurs and we asked what we weren't te- teaching in school. And that, that's exactly what they said. You're not teaching how to fail effectively. We know we give students problem sets that are designed to have mm-hmm. solutions. Even PhD uh, work and, 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 and problems are, in, in some sense, ones that we think the student is going to be able to address and solve. But in the real world, there are no, almost never any clean, simple solutions. You're always, you get to a point, you say, well, I've got the answer. But if the answer isn't to the question I asked, maybe it's to a different thing and move on and and. And but you know that's as I say that's what's exciting about science. I've happened to me a number of times in my career where I was working on something that I thought would be relevant for something and it didn't make not make headway. And then I realized later on it'd be relevant for something else. In fact, there's a great example from one of my scientific heroes, Steven Weinberg, a Nobel Prize winning physicist who happened to have also been a colleague of mine for years. He just passed away. Probably the, one of the greatest theoretical physicists in the last half of the 20, 20th century. He won the Nobel Prize for doing just that. He'd been thinking about how to solve a problem related to one area of physics called the strong interaction. And suddenly one day he realized his solution would apply to another area called the weak interaction. Over a weekend wrote a paper on that, and that's the paper that won the Nobel Prize. It unified the weak mm-hmm. and electromagnetic interactions. He had the solution, but to the wrong problem. It's, uh, why in, in- an analogy in the social sciences, some of the most interesting stuff occurs when you have collaborative groups and you bring in people from allied fields and there are things that they know that other people haven't thought, uh, you know. that that's a, that's a reason to talk to people who have different experiences and different ideas. And, you know, when, when I, that's the other thing people misunderstand about science. They think it's all done by people like Einstein in a dark room at night and they're not talking to anyone. It's collaborative. All of my career, I've collaborated with my students and postdocs who are sitting at the blackboard arguing and it's a back and forth. And and science as a whole is a social discipline. It requires a social discipline because it requires other people to attack your ideas. Otherwise, it doesn't work. We'll be back with Lawrence Krauss in a concluding segment here in the Think Tank in just a moment. 
The Think Tank, KTAR News on 92.3 FM and KTAR.com. We're back here with Lawrence Krauss talking science and related things. I want to start with, I promised I would give a website at the end. And sure. this conversation always gets so exciting <laughs> that I know we, we never run out of time. So if I don't do it at the beginning, I won't do it. Uh, free tickets to the Origins Project. Uh, uh, up to five pairs of tickets for two, a two-day event. Uh, contact me, MikeO'Neill.org. At the bottom of the landing page there, there's a, there's a button that says email. Send me an email and uh, first five. Will uh, so and indicate whether you there's a Tuesday event and a Wednesday event. Indicate whether or not you you want one or both, and we will assign accordingly. Yeah, and Tuesday the fifteenth and Wednesday the sixteenth. Tuesday is Richard Dawkins and me, and Wednesday is the Nobel Prize Starry Night panel on cosmology and the universe. Terrific. Okay, we were talking about science in, in a number of ways. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the things I wanted to ask you about, I've seen some recent studies that are kind of interesting. It has to do with kind of what makes it into scientific journals. Mm-hmm. And and that there's some indication, you know, among this, there were a number a number of studies that where somebody went back. Something doesn't get done very often is to replicate studies because there's very little payoff for that. And the related question of that I think is widely misunderstood. People think that oh, you can make your career just by you know siding in with no theory. And this is often in terms of like climate change mm-hmm. or something. If you become the you know the three thousand scientists to chime mm-hmm. in and basically say whatever. Everybody else, there is no payoff for you. There is there is scientific payoff for you to come up with something that says, "Well, everybody believed A, but that's not quite." That's how you usually it's famous. not that A is wrong. Mm-hmm. Usually it's that there's some A is a special case of something yeah. else. Or yeah, no, yeah. that's what we. As I used to say to people, we all go into work every day hoping to prove our colleagues wrong. Because that's in some ways to get to get uh, that's exciting. That's exciting, and that's and you know for people who like recognition and honors, that's one way to get them. But and the I, question is related to that. Given that that finding something else is wrong, is there self selection in journals for uh, somebody who produces such a study? In other words, let's say uh, you know a hundred people examine something, mm-hmm. and and three of them find out that some pre existing theory is wrong. Mm-hmm. Are those three more likely to get published than ninety seven? Well, you know, there is, one one of the secrets of uh, that we we keep. A secret is that scientists are human, and, mm-hmm. and therefore there are biases. And you and, and journals are run by editorial boards and referees, and there are and it is harder sometimes to get the confounding paper through. The great thing about science, though, is that eventually it does. Eventually, the correct ideas rise to the top because of just that. It may be hard at the beginning, but when that confounding idea leads someone to do an experiment and takes them further than anyone else has gone before, the community eventually. Grapples on, and but, a, event, but that means that in the interim, science may be wrong, or the prevailing view of science may be wrong. It, well, it may be if it is based on experiment, it can't be wrong in that sense. It can be it can be um, subsumed in something mm-hmm. different, or the experiments could be wrong. But you're right. I mean, there are lots of examples. I, and again, people won Nobel prizes for ulcers. You know, someone was arguing it was a virus, and or uh, you know, and. And uh, and everyone always thought you got an ulcer because you got nervous and things like that. And 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 these ideas eventually, the reason we know about them is they eventually percolate. So yeah, it's true that individual scientists and individual people have been hard done by that have had the right idea but couldn't get it accepted. Uh, and so in the short term, yeah, there's that give and take of, of human give and take and human misconception and misunderstanding. 
and power jockeying and all the rest of the things that happen in any human enterprise. But the whole point of science is it's designed to overcome that natural human desire to be biased towards what you want. And I once participated in a debate at the Oxford Union a year or two ago, and the premise was everyone is religious. And I, I, I went on the side, unlike my atheist colleagues, I went on the side that said, yeah, everyone's religious. And my point was, if they weren't, we wouldn't need science. If we didn't all want to believe, then science would be natural. We wouldn't have to be talking about it on this program. It it's, doesn't come by naturally because we're, we're predisposed to not want to be confronted, to want the ideas that we want to be true to be true. And, and, um, and that wonderful discipline, which has gone over years and years, is designed to be able to overcome that. And, and that's one of the things I love about science so much is that, is that ultimately— you know, I don't think scientists as human beings are any better or worse than anyone else or necessarily even less likely to fool themselves. They're just more willing to understand that they will fool themselves. <laughs> I think that's the key point. I think of the debate over COVID and, and, and originally we're wiping down counters. Yeah. And there are people who said, oh, you told us all this stuff and we now know that isn't true. And then, but they're taking that as see science doesn't work because you got that wrong. Yeah, and, and I well, know your response I, is going to be yeah, and we fixed it. <laughs> well, not only we fixed it, but here's the thing. I remember we may have even talked about this before early on in COVID. People wanted these answers, and you say it's been three months. How do you? It's not a Star Trek episode. It's real life. How? How do you expect people to learn the answer? Of course, what we're doing is preliminary because we need to do tests to see what's right or wrong. We need to try lots of different things and see what works and what doesn't. We don't know in advance. And it's, I mean, I think people, unfortunately, have been led into a kind of false sense of security, maybe, in the sense that it is amazing that we responded to COVID as quickly as we did, that vaccines were available within a year. That's unheard of in human history. You know, I, this is where I think the problem is not in science, but it's probably in media, which is, OK, so you got something like uh, global warming yeah. and 998 out yeah. of a thousand scientists believe something. Yeah. Those other two are going to end up on the news <laughs> yeah. because the news is set up. We got to be fair, which means we need to show both sides. Yeah. You show the side that of which there is an overwhelming consensus. And then you give this one guy out there often. Often somebody highly credentialed. Well, and also telegenic, probably, yeah, yeah. usually. And, yeah. and, and that's the problem. Media, are they always think there's two sides to every issue. But in science, it's most often the case that one side is wrong. And, <laughs> and I said that. Once, when I, the, one of the earliest moments when I, I guess I, I got a public profile in science was defending evolution against sort of intelligent design. People who wanted to have intelligent design inserted in the science classrooms when I was chair of a department in, in, in Ohio. And... The school board had a big public event, and they had these two guys who were intelligent designers and two scientists. And I said, this is a, a misrepresentation. If you really wanted to present it, you'd have these two guys, and you have 10,000 scientists on the other side of the panel. But making it two and two gives you the false sense that it's he said, she said. That and for somebody who doesn't know, and particularly yeah. the two there, yeah. may very well be very well presented. Yeah. They, they, they sound good. They, and, if, and if you really don't have the capacity exactly. to to take in the details of the yeah. argument, it's very, very easy it, to it, mislead people. It is easy to be misled on, online. That's why you have to check everything you read. Check to see if someone else is disagreeing with it. Thank you very much, Lawrence Krauss. It is always such a pleasure to have you here. I hope you come back and uh, we will uh, 
We will return next week in the Think Tank, and we will be talking about the uh, recently held election, but not so much micro. We're going to try to look at broad stroke. What does that mean for the Democrat and Republican parties moving into the future?